This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a fascinating guest. His name is Jack Devine, and he is the former operations director of the Central Intelligence Agency. When you hear people say the line, oh, this guy knows where all the bodies are buried, this guy literally knows where all the bodies are buried. If you are at all interested in spycraft, relationships with uh, Russians and other uh, foreign agencies, uh, counter-narcotics intelligence, and just the role of intelligence agencies uh, on the global stage, this is the conversation for you. So with no further ado, my conversation with Jack Devine. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the show, we have an extra special guest. His name is Jack Devine. He is a 32-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency, where he served as both acting director and chief of the Latin American division, as well as running the CIA's counter-narcotics center. He has received numerous awards from the agency, including the Meritorious Officer Award, the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, and other recognitions from the Central Intelligence Agency. He is also a founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, which specializes in strategic intelligence. And he is the author of Good Hunting, an American spy master's story. Jack Devine, welcome to Bloomberg. Great to be here. Your, your timing could not be uh, better. Uh, we'll get to some of the current events that are taking place, but, but let's start at the beginning. How did you find your way to the CIA? After graduate school, I taught uh, American history in suburban Philadelphia. And for my birthday or anniversary, I don't recall, uh, my wife, Pat, uh, gave me a copy of uh, David Wise's book, The Invisible Government, which is uh, at the time, was sort of a scandalous book about CIA and the military complex and how it was controlling the world. And uh, it, it, I found it fascinating and actually had a different different reaction than the author probably intended. And that is, I thought, what an amazing place to, to be, <laughs> setting aside the fact that there isn't such a conspiracy. But I wrote a letter with, you know, when we used to have big pens and pre-computers and cell phones, et cetera. And the letter went off to CIA, and within a few weeks, um, I got a letter telling me to go to 12th and Chestnut, and thus began <laughs> the the process. So you actually reached out to them. They didn't recruit you? That's correct. Um, the British system you know, had a tradition of uh, professors tapping people on the shoulder. And the early, very early days of uh, the OSS and in the uh, early days of the CIA, uh, that was not an uncommon uh, way to be brought into the CIA, very clubby. Uh, what are they uh, looking for when they reach out and tap somebody? What is it? A certain moral flexibility, or is good it good looks, uh, witty? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, well, again, I didn't. They didn't reach out to me, so I lacked whatever it was. I had to go through the process. Mm -hmm. And today, let me just do a reverse engineering. Today. Uh, instead of writing a letter, you have to go online. And it's much more impersonal, which I think we lose some really good people because of that, but mm -hmm. the numbers require it. Um, I think historically what the CIA is looking for is people who are uh, 
almost everybody that joins CIA has sort of within a range of IQ, education. Uh, they work hard to get the extremes out, people that mm-hmm. have you know, fantasies of being James Bond. So they, they, the psychiatrists you know, have tests, they interview, there's all types of souped-up SAT tests, uh, personality tests, there's interviews, physical, they, they need, you need to be physically fit, uh, mentally uh, sound. They do polygraphs to make sure that your integrity level, that you're not involved in any type of theft that would, you know, since there's no controls many times when you're delivering money. So it's across that that broad spectrum. But I would say fundamentally at the core, setting all these, um, what I would consider fairly standard requirements, they're looking for people that have a sense of mission, that they, they feel they want to serve their government and they want to serve it in a in a particular way. It's not a place where you apply just to get a job because you have a degree in political science or speak Japanese. So I think that's one of the key indicators. They didn't recruit you and you approached them. What sort of training did they put you through? No, we all went through the same training and everybody, I mean, they stopped doing the tapping on the shoulder uh, probably in their 50s. Mm-hmm. So everybody in my class, the what we, they called the career training class, which is sort of the premier class where they uh, developed the future leaders of the agency. Uh, and the the training is uh, about nine months. Uh, half of it is in uh, learning how to be a spy, you know, surveilling, how to develop people, how to assess people, how to write reports, um, how to take pictures at, at night and so on. And the second part is a, what they call paramilitary training, which is uh, it's a bit like boot camp where you learn uh, how to use every weapon under the sun, not because you're going to use them as much as you're going to be uh, dealing with people that are. Uh, jump training, demolitions training. So it has a heavy military uh, overtone to it. And at the end of that nine months, then you're assigned uh, to an area of, uh, of the CIA and its operational uh, region. The analysts go through a much shorter uh, training because this is not necessary to be an analyst. You're a good scholar coming out of uh, major universities uh, with orientation and some basic um, basic training about the analytical process. They're they're good to go. The operational training is much more intensive, including jungle training back in those days. Did friends and family have any idea what you were doing, or was this completely sequestered from your personal life? Well, you're instructed early on in the process. Do not share this with uh, with outside people other than your spouse, if you're married, and your parents. And uh, so I did, and I told my father, and he was very thrilled to have a son in the CIA. And I explained to him, whatever you do, do not discuss it. So not too long after I did that, I went to a, a wedding, family wedding, and I'm dancing <laughs> with my aunt, and she's grabbing me around the hips, and I feel, no, <laughs> my aunt's getting a little off the reservation. And I said, what are you doing? She said, well, I'm looking for your gun. <laughs> so, you know? so dad couldn't keep a secret. Now, there is a rumor <laughs> in the family, which I never bothered to uh, validate, uh, the rumor was that an article appeared in the Delaware County Times newspaper announcing my assignment. <laughs> um, so when I was polygraphed, I could say in a straight face, they said, did you tell anybody 
about uh, your employment with CIA, and I could say without batting an eye, absolutely not. They didn't ask me, did your father tell anybody? <laughs> and that would have been the— uh, uh, Probably the end of my budding career. Amazing. You wrote a memoir about your time at the CIA, Good Hunting, an American Spy Master Story. I assume you can't just publish that without the agency putting you through some sort of a vetting process. Did you get the manuscript back with these long black markers through it, or were they pretty reasonable? When you uh, join the agency, you have to sign an agreement that basically says anything that you write in, or anything you write has to be uh, presented to the CIA, to its uh, a publication review board, where it's reviewed by an analyst and supervised by a lawyer so that they're, they're cognizant of any legal implications. So when I went through the process, I felt comfortable. Most people in CIA cannot write about their experiences because they're not in the public domain. My career is interesting in that half of it was in the James Bond, excuse me, the George Smiley, Le Carre, uh-huh. clandestine meetings, uh, betrayal, espionage. And that's the part you really can't talk about very much. Although I happen to know Rick Ames and quite well worked with them, and I can talk about Rick Ames, the, the KGB mole inside of CIA. So there are some espionage things. But where I became publicly identified, it was in the action part, the James Bond uh, part of running the the Afghan task force to drive the Russians out of out of Afghanistan. I was in Chile when Allende was overthrown. I was in the middle of the Iran-Contra affair. So there's a whole series of things that eventually became public. I didn't realize at the time when I was doing that they'd become public. As a result of that, once it's in the public domain in an official capacity, in other words, the government has to have information out there. It's not enough that it's just out in some newspaper. It has to be officially out there. But all of this material is out there. So I can address, and I do address in the book, this is a book about, largely about the action part of, of CIA. They did do a vigorous and painful scrub. Now, and I would tell you, it wasn't about a source or method, which is the key question. Now, you can't mention any sources or any methods, but we seem to be uh, hung up uh, in the process about, you can't say you were in this country permanently. It would shock your audience if I told you which countries we can't say that because since you were in the fifth grade, you probably assumed that we had people there. But it was about geography. And I was a bit more uh, obstinate. And I'm working on a second book now, and I'm not as obstinate. I'm not going to waste my time on the issue of can I say I was there permanently or can I just say that I bopped into town. And, and, and when you say that, I'm assuming Russia, China, Iran, places like, not necessarily those places, but places like that. No, not really, because that I got it right out of the starting gate that I wouldn't touch any of those. No, mm-hmm. these are these are places where... Uh, I don't give any any clues, uh, but uh, let's say you'd be comfortable going there tomorrow and be happy to go there for a weekend. Really? That, that's, an, that's very interesting. Let's jump right into some of the more interesting places uh, where you headed up some missions. You were head of the CIA's Afghan task force uh, in the mid-'80s. What was the goals of the task force, and, and how much of these were accomplished? When I look back over my career, it's probably the point where I felt I had the most direct role part in a major historical event, world-changing one, and that was driving the Russians out of Afghanistan. 
when uh, the Russians invaded in uh, the late 70-79, the administration, it was the Carter administration at that time, and the world in general reacted very negatively and understandably so to the Russians invading. And uh, at that point, we actually began to help. But it was a modest effort uh, using antiquated weapons to support the Mujahideen. But each year, more and more uh, support was given, and the Russians increased their presence there steadily as well. And it became a battleground, the key battleground in the Cold War. And the Russians' departure in 89 uh, I think was one of the three major factors in the collapse of the Soviet Union, and I can elaborate huh. on it. You know, the Russians did leave, and they, they one of the major parts of uh, factors in that. Uh, first, I would say you had people on the ground who wanted to fight, and that was the Mujahideen. You had support from uh, the Pakistani government and the huge U.S. Uh, material support in terms of weapons, um, machinery, transportation, and eventually, during the time I was um, uh, involved in the operation, the introduction of the Stinger missile, which I believe is one of those few times in history where you can see an individual specific weapon change the course of history. I have a very vivid recollection of, I want to say it was 60 Minutes, doing a story on the Afghan war and showing the Stingers bringing down Russian helicopters. It was a real significant game changer for that conflict. Absolutely. Uh, We, uh, when I say we, I mean the Western world, and particularly the CIA and the U.S., uh, really ran into a brick wall in 85. And that was we were able to amass a large amount of weapons, but we couldn't get them across the border and into Afghanistan because the Russians were using uh, the Hind helicopter, a very sophisticated one, not unlike our Blackhawks, and they just pinned down all transportation. So and, this is and, night vision and, and heavily armed. Oh, it's and, speed. It's 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 the back in its day. You know, the Blackhawk was the you know the the super super jet of the of the helicopter world, and it was easy to suppress forces on the ground. And great fire. It had great firepower. The Blackhawk or the both. Or the, That's what mm-hmm. I'm saying. But at the time, uh, we were we uh, the CIA was looking for a, we were only putting in uh, Soviet block weapons. When you run an insurgency, uh, one of the theories, uh, and it's a good one, is that on the ground you want to be, have interchangeable weapons. By uh-huh. that I mean, if you're fighting the Russians, you want to be able to uh, give your troops AK-47 so that they can uh, with capture, their, capture and use it. Exactly. So whether you capture capture weapons and you can use them and you're used to using those weapons. So uh, we had to find enough weaponry to support 120,000 Mujahideen fighters. You can do the math on how much ammunition and uh, AK-47s are needed. But none of it could move because it it just couldn't move across the border. So we were looking for anti-air weapons that could be fired in the field and uh, bring down these helicopters. And everything we tried in the foreign setting didn't work. But it so happens in 86, the U.S. government was just manufacturing the Stinger missile, which is heat-seeking. That means, mm-hmm. you know, you, you fire it uh, far to the left of a, of a helicopter, and the heat from the helicopter steers that missile right into it. So the effectiveness at the time, General Dynamics thought, 
um, the Stinger might have a 25% success rate. It exceeded 75%. Wow. And one point that I would make, Barry, that you know, a lot of people don't understand, it's not just shooting down helicopters. What happened on September 26th? in 1986 is when the first shot was fired and the helicopter came down. I shouldn't say first shot because the first one bounced across the ground and the people on the ground said, Jack Devine sent us another piece and I'll leave the blank out (laughs) uh, of equipment. But the next three took out three consecutive helicopters, single shots. But what happened that day is the helicopters uh, thereafter flew above the trajectory of the Stinger missile. So it meant that they were neutralized. They just weren't able to suppress anything on the ground. And that consequently, we were able to just pour weapons across the border. So it wasn't just shooting down uh, the, uh, uh, the first few helicopters and several number of them, quite a few. After that, it was the fact that the strategy moved the helicopters above effective range. And what it also did which is I mean, terribly important, is back in Moscow, it was like the last straw. You know, they've been slugging it out, thought they could neutralize it, and they thought, what do we do now? We have to up the ante. Are we going, how long are we going to stay there? And frankly, it became a policy decision to start the withdrawal, and that was as early as 86, that they, once that Stinger missile was fired, the process of getting out began. And I think the leaving of... Um, of Afghanistan was a, a great blow to the to the the morale of uh, the Kremlin, and I think it eventually, along with the being so overpowered by the economic uh, strength of the United States, and to some degree, uh, President Reagan's Star Wars initiative, which the Russians believed, I was agnostic about. They believed it and thought, well, we really have to change our game plan, and they did. So, so they the made all came down. So they made a movie about this, Charlie Wilson's War. How accurate were the broad strokes? And when you watch these fictionalizations of of actual events, are they remotely close to the idea, or is it just you know a goofy? Uh... These are. Uh, it's a really good question. Actually, a series of questions, Barry. So uh, I was here in New York, and I was having uh, a late lunch in St. Regis Hotel which has sentimental reasons for me from my CIA training. We'll leave that aside for now. And and uh, Seymour Hoffman was there. And I really leave actors alone. I never approach them. And in fact, my wife was furious once in London because I came down the elevator with uh, Anthony Hopkins. And she said, well, what did you talk about? I said, I didn't say a thing to her. I pretended I didn't know him. She was livid. <laughs> so I don't make a habit of you know going over the celebrities, but I couldn't resist, so I went over to... Hoffman, who was a, a real gentleman, I said, uh, Mr. Hoffman, my wife loves you as an actor uh, and thought you did a, a great job in the the movie uh, uh, Charlie Wilson's War. But, you know, Mr. Hoffman, I have to tell you that that just isn't the way it came down. So I think he looked up and thought, oh, here's another one of these New York crazy people. Right. And he said, listen, thank you for your service, but I'm sure he felt um, – that uh, I was being, he was being put upon. But even before that, Charlie Wilson and I had dinner in uh, Sparks here in New York. Your audience may not be aware of Sparks is where Legendary Paul, Co- Steakhouse. Where Paul Castellano was right. uh, assassinated doorstep, which appealed to Charlie. Charlie had a sense of romance. And uh, he was with his wife at the time, and I was with mine. And we sat down, and he said, Jack, I, I know you didn't like the book. 
you're really going to hate the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the reason. Let me be. Charlie was a great character, someone that we all should be uh, happy to have known. He was a patriot. I mean, it's been he was much more substantive than uh, people have recorded but it wasn't charlie wilson's war but in order to make a movie you have to have a central person sure. you know so you have tom hanks and you have uh, julia roberts and you know you you have uh, this drama and the truth of the matter is these programs no congressman with a uh, somewhat wild as portrayed by the movie CIA operator and and uh, a socialite from Texas are going to change <laughs> change and run a war. It's not how it's done. It's a it's a major logistical um, effort done by the way governments do things with chain of command and it's all within house. I think it would surprise people to know that uh, you know in Charlie's Wilson War, and I was responsible from eighty late eighty five onward to till uh, well into eighty seven, and uh, I never saw their version of Julie Roberts. Uh, <laughs> Charlie Wilson um, had a stinger hanging over his office. One of my colleagues gave him an expended uh, tube. But Charlie, in fairness, in his book, said, you know, I had nothing to do with the stinger, which he didn't. But most people don't focus on, on that. Uh, Charlie and I traveled a couple times to south, uh, to Pakistan and to the border area of Afghanistan. And it was almost like a diplomatic trip. But I would say over my tenure with Charlie, we probably had five at most, substantive discussions about there had no no impact on how the war was being run. He called me once and said, well, Jack, I understand you shifted the supplies from 60% Egyptian-made and 40% Chinese to 60% Chinese and 40% um, Pakistani. Uh, what's up? He had a close relationship, oh, excuse me, Egyptians. He had a close relationship with the Egyptians. And I said, listen, Charlie, it's very simple. The the uh, weapons are they get there faster, uh, cheaper, and they're better made. He said, "Okay, got it." So, Charlie's influence in the details of the war and the running of the war is just not very realistic. He was important because he brought attention to it early, in the in the early '80s, and I think that's important. And he kept the uh, pressure on. I once asked him, "How did you get involved in it?" And uh, Charlie's a West Point, uh, a Annapolis graduate, and uh, he said, well, I'll tell you, uh, the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, came to me and said, Charlie, I want you to stay on this. I want you to stay on Afghanistan. That's your job. So that's how he actually got involved. And I noticed on one of these TV shows that you mentioned, they have him in a hot tub with a couple of beautiful women, which was when he was a bachelor, sort of his uh, style. And he's watching a, a, a video of uh, or a TV show with Dan Rather talking about Afghanistan, and in the movie, he suddenly becomes enamored with the battle. The real bat, uh, the real truth was that uh, uh, Congressman Wright told him to get on it. Uh, the other thing about, about the hot tub is I got a number of calls the next day, and uh, it was quite interesting. They wanted to know not about the stinger, not about the. They wanted to know was I in the hot tub with Charlie? <laughs> now. Uh, I, I was annoyed because, you know, a professional isn't going to be caught in that sort of situation. So I could tell when I answered the 
call her and said, look, I wasn't in the hot tub with him. They were disappointed. It was, well, Jack is kind of bland. He, he really doesn't belong in Hollywood. But by the third call, I finally wised up and I said, I don't want to talk about it. So I wasn't going to mislead them, but I, I left the impression that maybe maybe I was a little more flamboyant than, than the legend would have it. Plausible deniability. After the fact, looks back at Afghanistan that have said, well, the subsequent blowback from once the uh, Russians left uh, and the United States says, OK, we have no more need to be here, is that it created a power vacuum into which rises the Taliban. How accurate is that depiction of, of that part of the world? Well, Charlie Wilson and I did have a discussion at the time, and both of us were the view that we should have kept pushing uh, funds into the Afghan the experts and people that studied it for years and the policymakers were the view, look, we wanted to drive them out. We've completed our mission. You have to know when to end. And uh, with hindsight, when I look back on it and I would say, you know, 20 years later or whatever, when I sat and uh, was able to see the longer arc of history, I really believe I was wrong and Charlie was wrong. And that is we could have thrown as much money you can throw as much money as you want into Afghanistan, and it's not going to make a material difference over the long. It's a black hole. That's it. Just well, a- I'm I'm not a big fan of uh, nation building. I've uh-huh. come over the years to believe nations must decide on. They must have the the grit and will and desire to create their nation. We can't force feed them. We can maintain things as a. We can keep things at bay if that's desirable from a foreign policy point of view. But to think we can go into, a at that time, a civilization that would have been more familiar in the 16th century and think that you can fast forward into a democratic uh, country and with all the wherewithal is a, a fool's mission. So I'm, I'm opposed to it. I think I might have been uh, more charged up at the time about the battle, and, but with candor and hindsight – uh, I think this is a bad, a bad argument, and I, you know, and you, the second part of that argument is, oh, and, and you created the Taliban. I mean, we well, created you, a vacuum into which. No, the I think your, yours is better stated, the vacuum yes. part, which I accept. But you know, what people don't focus on is even after, uh, um, after the Russians pulled out, the communist puppet state, uh, Najibullah, stayed in power for three years. In mm-hmm. other words, it wasn't an immediate vacuum because we pulled out. Um, and the Taliban didn't exist then. So, and the Taliban is not a remake of the Mujahideen that, right. that we supported. So, uh, you know, it's convenient sometimes for people to draw lines. And uh, I, I just think that uh, an honest look will, will lead to better conclusions than those. Let's talk a little bit about your most recent venture, the Arkin Group, and how you came to co found them from the CIA. You were at the agency for 30 years. What motivated the exit? Well, I think there's a certain point. It's usually in your late 50s uh, that um, people exit the agency, and you, you wanted, they wanted to have a flow through, so the leadership was still relatively young. And in the early days, they wanted people out at 50, mm-hmm. which was unrealistic, frankly, because most people were just hitting their stride as senior executives. So it sort of was pushed back to 60. Uh, most federal employees can't retire until 65, but in CIA at 55 with five years of experience abroad, you can leave leave uh, early. Uh, the, in my particular case, I had 
the job as the chief of worldwide operations. That is about as far as you can go in the system. So staying around, unless they decided to make me the director, which I would have gladly have accepted, I would quit. That's a political appointment, right? That's a political appointment, yeah. So it was it was time, and there is a time to move on. I, I did what I wanted to do. I got as far as my aspirations uh, wished. So I, I felt it was a good time to leave. And if you go into the private sector market, you're better going in at your late 50s than your early 60s. So uh, I love the agency, and I would have stayed there forever if there was still a, uh, still opportunities. But you can't go back and do the same mm-hmm. top job. Uh, it just It's not only a question of not being fair, but I think it uh, you, you get too ingrained in the system. So what was the transition like from government work to the private sector? Yeah. Well, I didn't have a, I'd like to say I had a career plan, a mission. And I, when I left, I thought, well, you, you know, maybe I'll go back to teaching or whatever. But there was a, a former acting director of the FBI, a fine fellow named Larry Potts. And he called me and said, look, you know, there's an investigative company up in New York. And how would you like to come up and run our office for a year? Which I did. And the reason I was interested in the move is uh, I always found New York to be an exciting city. And I wanted to, uh, the idea of coming here, I thought, well, this is a foreign assignment coming to New York. Right. You know, two years would be great. You can d- enjoy New York and and uh, see the big lights. So two, two years, it takes two years to find an apartment. Well, I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> that was, as I said, well, I don't, right. And when I was abroad, you had the infrastructure of an embassy to help you find a place, but not, but not the, in New York. How, how long have you been here for? Well, I've been here uh, 17 years. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, uh, another 17, I'll be in New York. That's right. I'm working on it. But, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the, uh, living in suburbia, Washington, and it never quite clicked for me. And then I began to think about it. I was born in the Philadelphia area, and I lived in capitals around the world. I was a city person. Right. So the thought of going back and living in the suburbs just didn't have the appeal. So this was an opportunity. And after I got here and spent several months or almost a year doing this, um, I ran into uh, my partner, current partner, Stanley Arkin, who's a very prominent lawyer, uh, known nationally, actually. And is, uh, he actually tried the first case before the Supreme Court on insider trading in the defense um, and won the case, <laughs> and they changed the law accordingly. <laughs> but And he, what people didn't realize, was uh, in, he was uh, asked by the director of CIA if he would come down and defend one of the senior CIA people caught up in the Iran-Contra affair. Oh, really? So I, I remember, I didn't meet him, but I remember him coming down and that uh, the, the officer, uh, Stanley, was able to cut a deal for him. And I thought how smart, uh, what a smart operator he was. Now, other CIA people weren't too happy because Stanley, his only mission to request the director was to cut a deal for this fellow, and he did. So when we ran into each other, we had fairly limited contact. And then one day Stanley said, well, look, the company you're with, you know, too cheap to buy buy lunch, <laughs> and Stanley doesn't need a free lunch, I'll assure you. But I said, look, Stanley, I'll buy your lunch. So... We went uh, to Maloney and Percelli over on sure. 50th Street. Stanley doesn't even sit down. He's still standing. He says, Jack, I think we should go into business together. So I said, look, why don't you sit down? We'll talk about it. So the, the basic concept uh, was, uh, you know, he had a very rich 
uh, Rolodex of contacts and uh, and had been in the business of uh, using information in support of his big cases. And he felt that I had the know-how on how to produce that information. And it appealed to me because I am an information junkie. I mean, I'm an intelligence junkie. When I first left, I went out and interviewed, and I won't name the company, but it was a furniture company out in uh, Grand Rapids. And I thought, oh my God, I mean, how am I going to do this? I'm, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to be convincing uh, the salesmen. And uh, and uh, fortunately, uh, I ended up, as I said, in something I like and know, and that's collecting information, and collecting information internationally. Now, we do about a third of the work here in the States, but uh, much of the distinguishing work, because it's so much harder for companies is uh, in, in this space, is to collect internationally. And I think over the past 17 years, um, uh, Stanley and I are proud of the network we've, uh, we've built up, and I think it's, uh, it's very, very robust. Uh, but it's information collection. Uh, no one the Justice Department is not going to authorize me to help overthrow governments or counter invasions anywhere. So it's, we're strictly in the information business and helping clients to navigate abroad. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the headlines. Uh, the infamous House Intelligence Committee memo was authorized to be released. It raises the question, how independent are intelligence and law enforcement agencies like the CIA or the NSA or the FBI? So I think professionals in both law enforcement, and we'll talk about the FBI or in the intelligence world, CIA, although there are other law enforcement agencies and there's also other agencies involved in intelligence collection like NSA and, and military intelligence and so on. The professionals in this field really don't want to see an intersection between politics and intelligence. It's really, uh, I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to go into the CIA headquarters, but... No, uh, but I'll take you up on that offer for sure. Well, you're going to have to get on on the payroll first. Okay. So <laughs> when you, it's a, from my view, uh, from an aesthetic point of view, what I like, and more in the past than now, was the, there's an aesthetic uh, dimension to it. When you walk in, there's a certain amount of simplicity to it. On the left is a quote from the Bible, and it says, you shall know the truth and it will set you free. Now, someone gave that thought when they were thinking of what would go on the, the wall of the CIA. That is the mantra. In other words, your job is to get the facts, the truth, and as Jack Webb used to say, nothing but the facts. And it should be depoliticized. I would note, on the other side of the wall, the symmetry of the stars where the fallen officers of CIA are recognized, and uh, there's over 120 stars. When I joined, there was probably 50. So the, the ultimate price that officers have paid over the years for standing by that. I can't tell you the political orientation of most of the people that I worked with. I mean, there were a few that I suspected, but it was unprofessional to bring into the workplace, you know, domestic politics. It just wasn't professional. Uh, and the CIA is blessed uh, and I'll compare it with State Department in a minute, for, which, for whom I have 
great respect and an important role they play. But the CIA, when the directors come in, they come in with only a couple people. Usually it's the general counsel and maybe an assistant or two. But none of them hold command positions. Right. In other words, it's free of the political appointees other than the director and deputy uh, director. State Department, there are so many jobs that are open to the political arena, assistant secretary of this, ambassador, all ambassadors resign at the end of an administration. Mm -hmm. So it can be politicized uh, uh, more than uh, the law enforcement agency. The FBI director has a 10-year tenure, and there's been— Designed to make sure it carries over and before any single or two-term presidency. That's correct. So I'm a strong advocate of keeping both of those institutions, uh, and again, I'll leave state aside and other government agencies, but two that are very much in the headlines, out of politics. And I think the leaders of agencies that dabble in politics do a great disservice uh, to the core mission and uh, to the institution. So uh, it takes discipline. Um, not to become part of, when you're in the administration, not to become part of the politics. And, um, you know, if anyone were listening on this issue is going to be the director, I, I would encourage them to depoliticize. So so what are we to make of this recent attempt at painting agencies like the CIA, but these days the FBI, as corrupt, biased, one-sided institutions that— are working to thwart a candidate or a president. Is this just partisan me, wrangling? or Let me start with the CIA, the one I know best. and uh, I don't think that's a good description of what's taking place. I, I think people sort of miss the fact that the very first official visit that President Trump made was out to the CIA uh, headquarters. And my own sense is day in and day out, the relationship with... Uh, DCI uh, Director Pompeo and the administration is probably very, uh, very solid. And the workforce itself tries to be supportive of the executive branch. But I, my guess today that if you walk through CIA, it'd be not much different than when I would walk through it. Half the population would be Democrats and the other half Republicans, maybe shifting within 2% you know, in a given year. And I don't think they're politicized, and I don't think that's what's at challenge here. I do think when the directors go out and they should revisit this and feel like they are spokesmen for policy, political policy, that it paints a picture that uh, the institution is. So people underestimate the power of bureaucracies, and uh, you know, bureaucracy is a bad word, but over time, bureaucracies really mold the governments themselves. And I'm optimistic that, uh, and, and I believe this is happening, that the longer the Trump administration goes on, the more the bureaucracy begins to uh, create policies and, and, and things that are more tr recognizable in a, a more traditional sense. The FBI, by contrast right now, is in a firestorm. And, you know, the FBI is most comfortable with doing the investigations into crimes and kidnapping and so on. Mm -hmm. When and, and counterintelligence, they do a great job in, you know, uh, weeding out spies. And uh, they're a terribly important agency uh, for our government. But when you get involved, and sometimes you're un uh, necessarily involved in the political part, then 
the, the institution is at some, uh, some jeopardy. So these are really difficult times for the FBI. And, uh, you know, I think the sooner these, uh, the investigation is concluded and, and people can get back to doing the other things that they do so well, I think it will be healthier for the institution. So I, I do feel that the FBI is in uh, a, a really uh, difficult period. CIA has been in difficult periods in the past. I don't think today is one of them. How do you think this plays out with the FBI? Is is this the sort of thing that could lead to a Saturday Night Massacre where a bunch of people get fired? Because uh, you've, you've had a finger on the pulse of politics in D.C. You know what sort of what's going on there. What's your best guess as to how the Capitol deals with all these crazy cross currents? I bet on the bureaucracies over in the long term that they, because they're so needed, and the congressmen down on the Hill know that. I mean, they really do. I mean, you'll have speeches, but at the end of the day, I don't think there's any sensible congressman that's thinking that somehow we don't need the FBI or that they're not doing a very good job. So, when this is done, uh, I mean, this is the problem. This has been an elongated, mm-hmm. um, bloody match. But it's uh, a major overhaul and uh, uh, is probably not what I th- would think would come down the road. Now, it depends on how this plays out, but certainly some people will self-elect to leave. Probably good for everybody. Uh-huh. Um, but... Uh, I would expect the FBI to very quickly stabilize and return to its rightful place in our national security arena. But it's going to be hard sledding until this, uh, until the investigations are completed and we move away from the politics of of, uh, of the Russian meddling in the uh, election and get on with the more strategic issues in the international arena. So it appears that just about every intelligence organization in D.C. has come out and said with a fairly high degree of certitude, yes, the Russians have meddled in our elections. They've meddled in elections around the world. They have a very effective online presence. Um, There seems to be some reluctance to accept that as true amongst uh, both parts of this administration and certain congressmen, Devin Nunes probably most specifically, how does other agencies, looking at this from afar, so we don't obviously know what people in the FBI are thinking, but when the NSA or the CIA or other agencies are watching this, what's the internal discussion like saying, is it, hey, thank goodness it's not us, or are they looking at it as if they could go after the FBI, they could go after us? What does this mean going forward? I'm not sure, uh I would be surprised if people in the other agencies are internalizing it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think they see it uh, pretty accurately for what it is. Um, And uh, I I just don't see other agencies uh, going through anywhere near the the pain that the FBI is going through. When we talk about 17 agencies, I mean, you have to go back and look at the list. I mean, they're not all, you know, it might be the— uh, Indian Affairs has a, a branch of collection or whatever. So, I mean, you really only have a handful. And uh, the premier collectors are, would be the, you know, the NSA and the CIA and the FBI. Uh, when I think of collection, and, and the military collects a, a great deal of in, information, mm-hmm. and also the satellite 
agency that collects uh, satellite uh, data. So when you get around to the word meddling, it's really a good word. It's a, you know, in, in trying to understand this. I think there's really very few people today that don't realize uh, and accept that the Russians are meddling, meddled in the 2016 presidential election. But what's, what does meddling mean? And, uh, and from and my view, you know, I know what big covert action operations look like. And if, the, if Putin really wanted to have a field day in our election, you don't spend 200000 and you don't dabble. There's a dabbling dimension to this that I think should give people pause. That uh, if I were to, to, and I want to be clear, this is not inside information, it's just years of looking at it. Um, if, if I were to, to analyze it, uh, I think they want it to be a nuisance to Hillary. They didn't anticipate that uh, Donald Trump would become president. And they didn't foresee the unintended consequences. That they were trying to destabilize the West, it would mean that they never read Western history. You know, what happens when Europe is destabilized? You know that you end up with the Hitlers of this world in World War One or World War Two. So, destabilizing the West, if they wanted to do that, this this is very small potatoes. But that they meddled, and that there has to be a resetting of it, as. Um, is beyond a question of doubt, and I take some hope. As you know, the three top Russian intelligence officers visited the United States recently. My hope, is not based, I'm not asking. My hope is that it's a sit down and say, wait a minute, now we got to, we have to go back and re-examine where are we here? Is this the way we're going to play the new world we live in, or are we going to stick by the old Moscow rules in which we didn't interfere in each other's election? So I'm hopeful. It's the only way this gets resolved. Uh, because if it continues, then we will have to respond. And very few people are giving, there's nothing in the public discourse about what we do, but we're not going to sit here and let the Russians meddle, and then we'll meddle there, and we'll be back to the old Cold War program. So I think it's a good time to cap this off and have frank discussions and put some markers down on what we will and will not do. Uh, so if there's any silver lining, maybe that's it. So you raise a really interesting point. If we decide that hey, you want to play that way, Ivan? We could do something similar. What can we do to respond to the Russian participation in Facebook and Twitter? And, you know, it, it, it's not so much that they are coming onto our physical lands and wreaking havoc. They're just creating some confusion in the online space, which really causes a lot of people uh, some discomfort. We live in a new age of intelligence. I mean, if you ask me what's the biggest change over my lifetime, it isn't how you go about getting human sources. That's as old as uh, uh, prehistoric times. So the uh, it isn't it isn't that. It's the technology, the speed with which we can move information across boundaries. I mean, you just can't imagine the type of struggles I had to go through to collect information that today. One your click one click away from getting fifty times that and what I would work for uh, days to collect and the second thing is my ability to mobilize people. I mean you'd have to go out and hire a group and paint signs and today, you know, with a good Twitter account you can really stir up a lot of trouble. So uh, and there's a it's a leveling to it because you don't have to be a powerful nation uh, to meddle. 
So I, I still believe, strongly believe, based on, again, the arc of history, that America still is your most sophisticated intelligence uh, operation and in the technical area. And we certainly can respond anywhere in the world with things that are, are not seen by the naked eye today. So we can make life very difficult in the cyber world. The question is, to what end? I mean, why, we really don't want that to happen. It doesn't. There's no win-win in that. So, but if unchecked, you're you're led there. You will be led down that path. So I think it's in the interest. And I, you know, having been an adversary of the Russians, I have a lot of respect for uh, them in a different category. That they're not unmindful of what's about what's taking place here, and they need to recorrect because they were dabbling and didn't realize. It would have the impact. They never dreamed that it was going to turn around, lead to sanctions, isolate them in the West. And uh, I, I think they're probably trying to find a way out, pull a rabbit out of the hat on their end. We have been speaking with Jack Devine, former acting director of operations for the Central Intelligence Agency. If you enjoy this sort of conversation, stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things intelligence. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Jack, thank you so much for doing this. Didn't really get to talk about uh, Edward Snowden and, and the NSA and mass surveillance. What are your thoughts on that? Well, on Snowden, uh, actually when uh, Greenwald's book came out about Snowden, I was uh, called by Politico and, and asked for a few comments about it because they wanted to be balanced between Greenwald's version of uh, St. Snowden and mine. <laughs> and... Um, as I said earlier in the program, I knew Rick Ames. He was uh, mm -hmm. the American CIA officer who volunteered to the KGB. And, uh, Isn't that sort of a bizarre thing? I mean, usually, right? It's well, one of the problems in finding Rick Ames, and I think the same problem recently with Jerry Lee and the Chinese, if right. you're following that in the newspaper, but is that the CIA had a really hard time accepting the fact that one of their own was working for for the Russians. So it looked for all other explanations of why we were losing agents. And uh, I have uh, made it a habit of, uh, when I've talked to a number of the, the directors over the past several years, uh, to make the point that there is a mole inside the institution, so you need to make sure that you get briefed by the counterintelligence people and you track it because they're, it's part of the business is what I'm saying. You just assume that somebody is a turncoat. We've had spies inside the Russian system. They've come out. They're public. It's no, no surprise. Why we would think we would be immune from it is, is a tad naive. Because we're the good guys, right? For a group of people that are so hard-nosed, but it is true. We think of ourselves as... The, the the light on the hill and uh, that, you know, we, as I said earlier, you join because of a sense of mission. Who could possibly betray it? And I can talk about some of the behavioral things. I want to talk about Ames for 
one second sure. just to overlay it on snow. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. So when you find, uh, when you look at Rick uh, Ames, he was a very well-read person. He was uh, enthusiastic about the CIA and the counterintelligence and hunting down spies. But he uh, had a, a self-importance. He thought, while well, he was not very materialistic at this point in his life, he thought he was smarter than he was, you know. But he had a, a habit, uh, and it's a very dangerous one for anybody in business and in the bureaucracy, and that is he was lazy. So he would do things well. If he didn't like to do it, he wouldn't do it at all. So it's very safe to project over a career trajectory that people that are lazy eventually fall behind. So uh -huh. when you get in the middle of your career, you think you're smarter than everybody, but now you're, you find that you're a major and your people that went through your training with you are now colonels and one-star generals. So the bitterness of uh, and the gap between your narcissism, huh. and that's where the anger is. It's very rarely that people betray their country on some big philosophical issue. It's about that personal thing. You look at Snowden. Now, Snowden, I think, is a fairly bright fellow, but he wasn't good student in school, and why? If you start to look at Snowden, you see he was sort of a lazy guy. Did what he wanted, didn't do it. He was a very junior officer, and I think the same tendency was that he thought he was should be somewhere else in life and smarter, and this revenge sets in. I don't believe he was a spy. If so, the Russians had upped their game, that you could find a Snowden where in his position, find him and recruit him, uh, is better than my understanding of our success rate. So I think he was a disgruntled guy. But the minute he ended up in Russia, I just, uh, there's no, uh, you know, it doesn't take much imagination to realize that Snowden, everything that he does is controlled by the state. Right. In this case, the KGB and the FSB. And, and that is his meals, his job, who he meets, who he sees, what he can say public and not say publicly are all controlled by the system. So after a while, you become wittingly or unwittingly an agent of the system. So while that may not have been his design, that may not have been his motivation, uh, he is a, a pawn in the system. And over time, almost all defectors leave very, very unhappy lives. And I would, and that would be my forecast for him. He will be, as he ages, and he's got a long way to age, he will become a uh, uh, terribly depressed person. Ever, ever coming back to the United States? or If he wants to go to jail, I, he will be prosecuted mm -hmm. and convicted. And that's that. Let's talk a little bit about counter-narcotics, because you headed that division. Uh, you worked on the Pablo Escobar case, helping to— Bring him down. Tell us a little bit about that. What was that like, and and what were the goals of the counter narcotics division? A number of your listeners may not recall that in the early '80s, counter narcotics uh, was the number three concern. Or narcotics was the number three concern of the American public. They wanted their government to do something about it because. Drugs had moved into suburbia, had moved into the countryside. It was pervasive and— It was big business. Big business. So there was a huge push in all the government agencies to uh, 
enter into counter-narcotics. Uh, CIA and the FBI was not enthused about it, and one of the reasons was they were reluctant to get into business that concerned them that they might get too close to the business themselves and uh, the temptation and corruption sure. would be an issue. So there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm, and the FBI wanted to do crime busting, of, uh, and uh, and we wanted to do uh, catching spies and running spies. So they actually created had to create DEA. It had another name at the time, but it had to be made up and people drawn from other agencies because no one wanted to do it. But then as it got more and more money, next thing you know, the Navy was using ships to go run down a little tobacco boat running for right. the Caribbean. So money draws. So little by little, it became a big business in the, in the, in the CIA as well. And we created a center which brought in people from other agencies and and from other disciplines in CIA. What I got out of the center, which which is a, it's the, the way you do business. Normally in the agency, it's stovepipe, analyst, operator, scientist. In fact, we have elevators that were color coded when I walked into the building, and you would never dream of going up the green. A scientist elevator, and nobody would ever go up the spy elevator. They just weren't a spy. So creatures of habit. The beauty of the counter-narcotics program and the counter-terrorism one, that it changed the discipline and that all of these groups had to work together. We brought them together, and we started to develop new capabilities, linkage analysis, which we take for granted now, and that is how you use software to tie different conversations, and technology became a huge part of it. And uh, on the ground, uh, we invested a lot of time in integrating capabilities. And I know this will get boring for your readers, but I'm just saying the counter-narcotics targeting became a model for the future of how the agency was going to do business. In the drug business, ugly, ugly business, Pablo Escobar for sure was a high figure in Colombia, uh, had his own zoo, blew up an aircraft. I mean, he was a really vicious and dangerous guy in Medellin. But the more dangerous group was the Cali cartel, which had uh -huh. a lower profile, but they had more. They were really moving more drugs and more money. But because of Escobar's fighting with the government, uh, he had a higher profile, more easily identified. So. Uh, from an agency point of view and working with other agencies, the, the mission was to identify where he was and then to have a well-trained unit be able to take action. The Colombians and we felt that if you took a policeman and put him on the street after training, within a day or two, he's met by a drug trafficker saying, look, I'm either going to give you $100 and you don't have to do a thing. Just don't do a thing. Do nothing. And if you don't, if you try to be active, you know, we're going to shoot you. And so it was a question between, you know, uh, uh, the, the expression in Spanish was, you know, the wall and, and between lead and money. You know, mm -hmm. you can either. Uh, so it's very tempting for people. So you couldn't put police around. So we had to develop special units. And then if you watch uh, the Escobar movies or whatever, uh, you will see that at the end he was. Uh, located on his cell phone talking to his son. And so that the technology, the world we live in, made it easier to identify him and to, uh, to uh, 
he met his demise as a result of that. What do you think of the war on drugs that took place domestically, and how does that contrast today where I believe it's a not just a majority but a substantial majority of Americans favor either decriminalization or legalization of things like marijuana? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, a tricky subject. One of the things, I was on what I would call the supply side. Or how, do you, how do you stop the supply? Mm-hmm. And stopping the supply is an important thing. If you don't do it, if you're getting, uh, let's say, 500 kilos a day going into the United States, um, you'll end up with 1,000 if you don't have it. But that right. isn't the real By the way, in college, I was on the demand side, so I was on the other side of that. <laughs> well, I heard that. Your file, indi- your file indicates that, Barry. But the, the, the problem is as long as there's a demand, no matter what you're doing on the supply side, the price will go up, but people are going to find those drugs and deliver them. Right. So if I had $10, I'd put $3 into the fiber, the cider. I would put $3 into supply and uh, 7 into demand. The problem with the demand side is, you know, we talk health, and certainly we should do everything we can, but the rate of success in dealing with it from a health point of view is really dismal. So how do you prevent the consume, consumer from uh, taking drugs. So law enforcement is going to go in and do what it can, but it doesn't impact on the, the consumer. And to some degree, and why people giggle at it, uh, I don't, uh, Nancy Reagan just said, say no. Well, it's not as simple as that, but there, you have to do something that makes people feel that it isn't good to do this, that they decide that it becomes Un, uh, not fashionable. What would be my point? Why do it? Why did everyone on TV three or four years ago wear purple shirts and purple ties? I have no idea. I don't know who started the trend. It didn't happen. But there are trends in history. There's trends in foreign policy. And if I look at ISIS today, we're seeing a downward trend. Okay? Right. But when you looked at narcotics, where was there in history that the drug, the cocaine? Heroin dropped. Now it's back, but why did it drop? It became uncool. Hollywood did so much in terms of playing it that, you know, why it might have been cool for not, not in any circle I care to be in, but here in New York, you know, to put a cocaine on the table and have a party. There was a point where you didn't look too good if you were doing that. So there, the point is you have to spend time in what I would call uh, – Social engineering. Social and engineering, but yeah. be careful how we do it. But the, you have to get the consumer, the American people, to stop thinking that taking drugs is a good thing. I kind of like the idea of making the price so cheap that there's no profit margin for the bad guys, which is what seems to be happening with marijuana wherever they legalize it. And now they're talking about Canada becoming the first G7 country to make it completely legal. Well, I remember not too many years ago, four or five years ago, sitting down with the, the head of the police in Mexico City, and we were talking about narcotics, and he said, look, you're legalizing it state by state. And you know, he was ahead of his time in identifying the use of marijuana. Uh, I do think your point is right on target as it relates to the huge uh, downside of it being a criminal offense is that you foster criminal organizations. They're taking the money. It's not only out of the system, but you have people that influence the political arena and can do horrible things. If you legitimized it, that would go. I, however, on the other hand, um, uh, 
dubious that we actually would be uh, effective in managing it. Because too often you start with we're going to control it, and the control turns out not to be there. So, right. and, and I, by we, the way, I, I put, want to be careful that we don't have a doped-up society. Right. So and, there is some balance in this. Now, I think in the criminal system, and I'm not an expert on the statistics, but I think most of the people that are in jail are are not users; they are sellers. sellers. So, and the question, uh, so. The, the legitimization of marijuana, I mean, I don't want to get in trouble with all my former colleagues we worked so hard on. But there is something here to try and get organized crime out of it. But I have yet to see a program that would make me comfortable that we would have the self-discipline and to manage a program where we wouldn't end up being uh, a very weak uh, populace. And and I have some libertarian friends who think everything should be legalized. I think beer and wine and weed are one thing, and the opioids and heroin and all that stuff, an entirely different set of issues and problems and risks for society at large. Right. And I think, you know, no matter how we look at it, we have to deal with it. The, the drug problem is back, and it's back big time. And uh, the heroin is really quite amazing because uh, it is so addictive and uh, yet it's worked its way into our... Uh, Everywhere. But in the school system is where it caused the flashback in the 80s and people to say, heroin use now down in the low teens is, is uh, quite large and the number of overdoses are stunning. Stunning. So I have to get to my favorite questions. I'm, I'm just going to do a, a lightning round on a couple of quick things because I, I can't miss them before our standard standard questions. Um, so really quickly, U.S. drone program, effective, ineffective? Uh, what do you think of it? You didn't ask me, but I'm, uh, I'm staunchly opposed to enhanced interrogations, okay? That's the next question on my list, so torture and I want to take them side by side okay. so that somehow you don't think I've become— uh, wimpish over the years. Uh, so, so torture, does it work, and should we do it? Uh, let me let me answer your drone. <laughs> so I want to say uh, I'm opposed to the enhanced interrogation. On the drone, I feel quite differently. I, to me, it's like the new stinger. Uh, I actually had my hands on what I believe is the first drone uh, that was going to be used in combat in 1986. We were going to use it in, uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, I was looking at it. It looked like a souped-up uh, uh, toy plane, but it was about six foot wide. And uh, I got a call. The lawyers called and said, oh, Jack, you can't use that. That's assassination. Okay. So I said, right. We're not, I guess we won't use that. So instead we got these big mortars and fired the mortars <laughs> right. with GPS. Now, this is where your business clients will want to take me with a grain of salt because you'll realize that I don't have a keen business interest in this area. I actually had the first, uh, we had the GPS was introduced to me. We put it with the mortar, first time ever used in combat in Afghanistan. And to me, it was a weapon system. If I had a business sense, I should have stood back and said, wait a minute, this is GPS. This we can is put good. this in cars. We can make this thing really hum. <laughs> well, as you can see, I'm, I'm not here in an Armani suit because I just didn't remember so, remember to do that. So so, so I'm, I'm an advocate of it. I think it's a powerful thing. It was used originally for surveillance, and then someone said we need to put 
held fire missiles on him. Frankly, I've got no no time for the terrorist, and, and and but it has to be handled, you know, smartly. I mean, you have to, have, and I, I believe we have the capacity and have been using it smartly. So pro drone, anti torture. Let's talk about WMDs in Iraq. What the heck happened there? And who do well, you blame for that? Was that the CIA or was that the shadow agency that the vice president's office created? Well, I think there's there's several aspects of the. The weapons of mass destruction issue, um, and again, this is where there's a polarity with me. I was for going into Afghanistan immediately after 9/11, finding Bin Laden and taking down the Taliban, unequivocal, had no right. compunctions about it. We did as a CIA special forces went in, took down the Taliban using uh, some of the folks that we worked with back in the old days. I had no compunctions about that. I wouldn't, I would have, my view is not to hang around. I wrote an article some years later in 2010 in the Wall Street Journal saying, you know, you want to keep using the CIA and special forces and low profile. You don't want to go in and build through the nation building. But leave that aside. Iraq, I never understood uh, in the sense that. You and everyone else. <laughs> well, the weapons, you know, we talk weapons of mass destruction. He definitely had weapons of mass destruction. Inspectors went in. This is before the crisis. And we, we know they destroyed only half of them at the time. So mm -hmm. whatever happened to the other half. So it was not an un, uh, unreasonable position to believe that uh, there were weapons of mass destruction. I mean, Saddam Hussein fooled his own cabinet. In other words, everyone else thought, well, he's had it, he has it hidden somewhere else. Okay. And, uh, you know, he never denied it publicly. But my problem is there was nothing that I saw and have yet to see to this day, anything that indicated that even if he had them, that he was going to use them, right. use them against us, and that there was an eminent threat and we needed to deal right. with it immediately. So I think it's going to prove to be one of the great— um, Military the blunders? Is that a good way to describe it? Well, it's it? more than military because I think— uh, it's really a geopolitical uh, mistake. In La that. Allowed Iran to lose a counterbalance. They really expanded dramatically. And you've opened up, you know, you've opened up a, a huge instability vacuum in, in, in today that we're, we're living with. So, um, you know, conventional wisdom, and you know, we're not talking about North Korea and Iran today, but I was reading today in the newspaper about giving somebody, you know, giving them a bloody nose, you know, uh, the North Korea policy, strategy. right? So, and having options on going in and preemptive strike, and I'm thinking, gosh, don't we ever learn? <laughs> I mean, what are the unintended consequences? Play back your tapes from when we went into Iraq, or, or you know, the oil. The matter. oil was going to pay for the war. I mean, our ability, of very smart people, to deceive ourselves when we're when we're spun up. So I, I think these the the Iraq is a most unfortunate uh, development in our, our modern history and uh, getting out. And this is the problem when you do preemptive anything. It's easy to get in, and we are the most powerful force in the world, bar none. So we don't have trouble getting in. It's how do you get out, and what are the consequences? Have you foreseen all the consequences? Clearly an issue. And and for the record, I will add. Nobody who actually could do basic math imagined that the oil would pay for the Iraq war. That that line might have affected the enumerate, but 
the rest of us knew that was nonsense. Yeah. I only have you for another eight minutes. Let me jump to my favorite questions. Um, tell us about some of your early mentors. I think, uh, as I think back over my career, and that's why good hunting uh, it was helpful writing it because you then go back and say, oh, my goodness, uh, I really, did I thank that person enough? And I started making calls because I would interview people, and it was, uh, it was, you know, it was fascinating. I remember calling one fellow that was my deputy on the Iran program, and how we tried to avert getting into the Iran Contra affair. And he was out, and I was somewhere on a tractor, and I called, and uh, and I could hear his wife getting him, and he got on the phone, and, uh, and I said, "This is Jack Devine," and I heard. <gasps> Big sigh, and I thought I know. I know. I know that sigh. That sigh is. Oh, what did he get me into? And I said, "Look, Claude. Lord, I wanted. All I wanted to do was tell you how grateful I am on, you know, which I didn't appreciate enough at the time. That's I did funny. because of the book get to talk to some of my mentors, and a few of them have died in the last few years, and it's a great thing to go back and uh, and to. Uh, Talk to them. So I talked to a fellow uh, who was uh, my chief in, uh, in my first assignment abroad. And when you look back, I must—it was a pain to deal with me. You know, too much hubris and all this. But I learned so much from him, and uh, he, he was helpful to me as his career advanced. He was helpful to me. Tom Polgar was the last chief off of the roof in Vietnam, uh, and was the chief out there. Wrote that famous message about. Uh, if, you know, do we ever, you know you need to learn from history? But so I called Tom on the phone, and uh, he said, "I said, look, Tom, I I, uh, I wrote this article." He said, "Yeah, that's good, but I I got a couple I want you to read." <laughs> you know, so he hadn't changed one bit. So I had a whole series of it, and we couldn't go through them. But I felt I was helped. You know, they call the business a trade, trade craft, right? And you know, I'm Spycraft. I'm the son of a plumber, and uh, you know, and I worked. I was terrible. That's why I had to become a spy. But you know, it's you learn at the, you're an apprentice at the, the elbow of a master, and and I think the best the best thing that can happen to an officer in CIA is to work for someone who's a real craftsman and has an interest in developing. So I think I've been extraordinarily lucky in that regard. Let's talk about books. This is everybody's favorite question. Tell us about some of your favorite books, whether they're related to intelligence or not. Uh, fiction or nonfiction? Well, I think, uh, well, first of all, I, mean, uh, I, I would mention a book that I read a little bit every day, and, I, and whether you're secular in your beliefs or not, but I read uh, two verses of the Bible every day because I find it, uh, leaving the religious connotation inside, about life and, frankly, even the language in which we speak. It's interesting in Abraham Lincoln, you know, most people back in those days, the fundamental book that they worked from was the Bible. They didn't have other books. So Lincoln, when he talks about, you know, no uh, house divided can't stand, I mean, where's he drawing this? So I, I, I find some inspiration in it. But right now I'm reading a book about Grant by Ron uh, Chernoff. Uh, everybody has told me they loved that book. The book, it can be read on several letters. Look, I'm just leaving the Battle of Vicksburg. I'm not a military uh, expert. I mean, I've been involved, but I, the reason I was involved is because I was surrounded with people that really knew what they were doing. But 
it's the person Grant that's so interesting that he would absolutely have been a failure at home, and, and, and it was a failure in just about everything else. He was an unassuming character. But there is a great deal to read and to reflect on. Things about the Civil War that I had missed, the, the role of the of ex-slaves in the army. I mean, real roles for them. So it's a it's a fascinating reading. I'm in, in, in enjoying it. Um, uh, I I like history. So you know, Doris Kearns' uh, team sure. of rivals. You know, how does a government function? The dynamic uh, around that. I read one on the CIA uh, last year. It was called The Brothers, and it was Alan Dulles, the head of CIA. And uh, what'd you think it, of it? It, I learned a lot be, because even though I was in the business, the dynamic of the two of them, uh, and uh, I'm a student not only of the bigger history but of CIA history. So it was it was interesting to me. The broader readership probably not uh, uh, not not so much. And now, I, I don't want you to think. Well, I did read John Le Carre's latest book. I I don't read spy books. I've never read one of Ian Fleming's. But I did read his first three books, which I thought were superb in understanding the psychology of people in the business. Huh. And I just read his uh, last book, Legacy of Spies, and I wish he hadn't written it. Just <laughs> sort of diminishes. I mean, I just read it, and it's like, uh, yeah, The first got, three are the ones to read. Uh, the, the first three were really uh, pieces of art. And, um, and uh, my last two questions— if uh, somebody, a recent graduate or a, 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 a millennial came up to you and said, I'm interested in the intelligence field, what sort of advice, uh, what sort of career advice might you give them? Well, I think there's a, uh, a couple of things that, that they need to realize. They have to go online. So, uh, And then you're going to get an interview. You need to know the business enough to talk articulately about about it, so I would recommend you read books. Good Hunting certainly is a good start. Good start, sure. but there's a number of really good books. When I was looking for books to read, there was hardly anything. Alan Dulles' Craft of Intelligence, David Wise's book. Today, there's a lot of really good books, but yet, and then you have to decide what do you want to be, where do you want to be, and then you have to think about the life that you're going to live. Do you want to be in Washington as a an analyst, or are you going to travel around the world? What's that going to mean with your spouse? So there's a lot of life issues that go into it. Almost any degree, as long as you do well in it, and almost any respectable school is going to get you there, assuming you have you know, an IQ that's somewhere between 120 and 140. You don't have 170 because then you're dysfunctional inside the bureaucracy, right? So we, can we can't have too many geniuses. You really need the question of integrity. And it may be counterintuitive to the movies, but you know, you have to have a sense of mission you want to be there. And they're going to be looking to make sure that you're a person they can trust. And as I said earlier, you know that you are not a person who's engaged in petty theft because we're worried that petty theft will lead to big-time theft uh -huh. inside. So these are the types of things that people need to think about. And our final question, what is it that you know about spycraft and intelligence gathering today that you wish you knew 35 years or so ago when you started? There's a, a great quote by uh, by former Secretary of State Schultz. And the quote is, no bad idea dies in Washington. <laughs> and the, the point is that it, early in my career, I thought this is such a dumb idea that it will not 
go anywhere, so you don't have to stand up and be counted, right? And that held me well because virtually all the bad ideas didn't uh, didn't die, but the one that didn't die was the Iran Contra affair, and mm -hmm. I I do think I stood up, but I think I should have gotten top of the building and screamed at the top of my voice that it was a bad idea. So uh, I, I would say that people uh, in key positions in bureaucracies, uh, you know, when you see a bad idea, stand up. And I would say to young people and, and people that are seasoned, uh, it is important, it's critical, it's a responsibility at a certain level in, in, in all institutions to uh, speak truth to power. And for those people that are worried about their career, you know, I would tell you it helps your career. Now, you have to be careful how you phrase it so you don't annoy the unduly the, the recipient of it. But it is so important in the public sphere, and I believe in corporations as well, to speak truth to power. And I think they're some of the lessons that, uh, as you reflect back on it, it's, it's key, the things that you learn. It's not just how to put down a dead drop in the middle of a park so no one sees it. We have been speaking to Jack Devine, former director of operations at the Central Intelligence Agency and author of the CIA memoir, Good Hunting. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch at any of the other 180 or so such conversations that we've had. Uh, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff who helps put together this show each week. Michael Batnick is our head of research. Taylor Riggs is our producer slash booker. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer and producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>